Good morning. My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane, and along with Reagan Gilliland, uh, my wife, uh, we are both uh, pastors here at Lover's Lane, and we get to co-pastor this worship service that we call Thrive uh, Together. So I want to say thank you for being here this morning. We're glad that you're with us. If you're here for the first time, we hope that if nothing else, you can see that our mission statement is true both in word and action, that we want to love all people into relationship with Jesus Christ here at Lover's Lane. And if you're with us online, we're glad that you're here as well, whether you're homesick or traveling or it just was hard to get out of bed this morning, we're glad that you could join us for worship as we continue in a series called United We Love, when we've been talking about uh, the ways in which um, God has this through-line story in the Bible of including folks that we don't expect to be included and and working in surprising ways, and and the way in which God's love draws different kinds of people together, uh, united around the mission of the Church of Jesus Christ. So uh, today we're gonna we're gonna talk about um, exile. We're gonna talk about what it means to be in exile. Exile is a, a common theme in the Old Testament scriptures of the Bible, and to be in exile essentially means to be um, overtaken by a majority power or culture to live as a minority in a culture that does not practice nor even believe uh, the same way that that you do. And and even though when we talk about exile, frequently we think about it in terms of being forced out of your homeland or living in a place that you don't call home, I I bet you would agree that it is possible to live as an exile even in your own homeland, right? Have you ever felt like an exile in the place that you thought was your home? You ever felt that way? I know I have. The, the Christian church in America is changing. We, we've known that for some time. I want to put a, a graph on the screen. Uh, this is from Pew Research. They released this uh, poll back in October of last year. They've been conducting for about a year. And what they found is that uh, what you can see on the screens there, this is a breakdown by generation of who, who um, uh, identify as Christian uh, non-Christian faiths, and unaffiliated. And, and as the, the graph goes down, those are the younger generations. And, and you can see there is a stark drop uh, between Generation X and Millennials. In fact, the, the big finding in this, in this study was that Millennials, that's, that's my generation, that's many of us in the room this morning, we're the first generation to not have a majority of us identify as Christian. And that's a big deal, right? That means things are changing. And notice they're changing quicker and quicker. Do you see? Uh, do your little differentials there, right? Now we're getting back in like high school pre-calculus, right? Look at the difference in the drop-off and how it's growing exponentially. It is not, uh, it is not unlikely. It's, it's very likely that the next generation, whatever we're going to call them, Generation Z or Generation Fortnite, I don't know what we're going to call them yet. I'm sure that they'll hate their name just as much as millennials hate ours. Um, uh, that, that the unaffiliated will actually be the largest group, right? Notice that. Unaffiliated is at 40 percent. Christians at 49 percent. If that drop-off continues, if that change continues, it's, it's very likely that unaffiliated will be the largest religious identity here in America. And so it appears as though Christianity, or at least organized Christianity, the Christian church in America is headed for a period of exile. We are no longer going to be the majority culture. We're going to be a minority uh, culture in, in a larger culture that may not share the same beliefs and values that we, and cultures that we do. 
even as we continue to live in this land that we consider home. So let's talk about this. We're going to talk about the church during this series, and we also got to talk about who we're going to be in the future because we are not going to be living in the same land that we once did. This is not post-World War II America anymore, right? Now, some people get agitated when they see numbers like what was just on the screen there. They get agitated. They, they feel like we're losing something, and it can generate fear, right? And maybe it generates fear within you. I don't know. It doesn't generate fear within me, and, and I'll tell you why. Because I know, I know, I know, I know that it's in seasons of exile when God is always, always, always at work in a powerful and important ways. It's always in seasons of exile when God is doing something really important. Here's what God does in seasons of exile. God calls his people to both reformation and returning, right? God reforms the people that are in exile. He, hel he helps them to ask the hard questions to acknowledge where things might have gone wrong, to, to, to uncover and unearth all the things we wish we could tamp down. God reforms us, and then God calls us to return, not to some glory days that are gone and won't be regressed, but instead to return to the simple kind of faith that we've always known and yet we so easily forget. Seasons of exile bring both of those things about, reformation and return. And I know this because I've spent some time with the story of the prophet Micah. The prophet Micah, he comes in, in, the, in the list of minor prophets in the Old Testament. It's towards the end of the Old Testament when there are these prophets who are helping Israel understand why these periods of exile are happening for them. And Micah proclaims a message to the people of Israel in this ancient time that I think is a very relevant and important message for the people of America today. He could see the writing on the walls, right? He didn't need a Gallup or a Pew Research poll to tell him what he knew was coming. This exile is coming. We're not going to be in charge for long. And he knew that Israelites would, ask, would be facing a lot of questions. And he knew that this exile was in many ways their own fault, and they had to wrestle with that. They had to grapple with that. But Micah also knew that God could use the season of exile as a moment to reform the Israelites and return them to the faith that once gave them and those around them so much life. So I want us to look at the prophet Micah this morning, uh, specifically beginning in chapter 6. If you want to open your Bibles or your Bible apps to Micah chapter 6, verse 1. Now, just to catch up to speed, the first several chapters, first five chapters of Micah, Micah does what most Old Testament prophets do. He does two things. One, he tells them where things went wrong, right? He tells them all the ways in which Israel is not living up to the righteous standards of God, right? You're not living as the people of God that God wants you to be, right? Here's where things are going wrong. Namely, for the people of Israel in Micah's day, it was greed and oppression of the poor, right? Well, we, we couldn't possibly identify with that today in America, right? No. Um, so uh, he spends some time addressing what's gone wrong for them in Israel. And then he also spends time casting this big vision of God restoring them and, and God, um, uh, you know, creating again this, this, this new Jerusalem and this new Israel one day that's far off on the other side of exile. But then he gets to chapter 6. And it's like he can hear this sort of stirring question in the Israelites going, okay, what is it that God wants from us? You've told us where we went wrong and you told us what things could be like, but what is it that God wants from us? If you're in a season of exile, if you know what that feels like, 
to feel like a stranger in your own land, to feel like, um, to feel like you're beaten down, to feel like um, something went wrong and you're not sure what, frequently the question can be, what, what do you want from me, God? What do I do? How do I change? How can I live differently? How can I make this right? And that's the question that Micah is going to help answer in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. So let's pray for our scripture this morning. Um, we do that here at Lover's Lane and Thrive because we believe that Scripture is a living text, and when we invite the Holy Spirit to be a part of our reading of Scripture, it can make it come alive for us in new and exciting and important ways. So let's pray over our Scripture this morning. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day, and we give you thanks for this time of reflection and, and listening and learning. God, would, could, we, could you open our ears in our minds and our hearts to receive the words of Micah, not as some historical words meant for another people living a long time ago, but as words meant for us living today. A people who have grown comfortable being in charge and who see that control quickly fading, who know that, that exile is coming and we're not sure what to make of it. And maybe some of us are asking the simple question of, God, what do you want from us? during this season of exile? What do you want from us during this season of living as a minority culture and belief in a larger world? And so God, allow the prophet Micah to speak directly to us today. Allow the words to leap off the screens and off the pages of the Bible and into our hearts so that they could change the way that we live. All this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus the Christ, amen. So Micah says this beginning in chapter six, verse one. He says, hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you, enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. So Israel's been moaning and groaning, why, oh, why, oh, God, why are you doing this to us? Why are you abandoning us? Why are you leaving us, right? And God says, whoa, 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 I got a bone to pick with that complaint. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? God says, and what have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. So there's a lot of names and places and things in there that you may not recognize, and we're not going to get into all that today. What God is saying is, you're saying I'm abandoning you. You're saying I'm leaving you. Do you not remember who I am? Do you so easily forget the story that we share together? Do you really think this is the end? This is how it all dies? I'm a God who just abandons my people. Do you not remember how I pulled you out of Egypt? Do you not remember how I saved you in creating your own nation? Do you not remember all the battles I helped you fight, all the victories we won together? Do you not remember my faithfulness? Remember that as you're heading into exile now, right? Breathe. It's going to be okay. This is not the end. Right? That's essentially what God is saying. And so there's this question that's, that still lingers. What do you want from us, God? How do we make this right? And Micah offers them an answer from the Lord. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? See, that's what you did in the Jewish tradition. If you wanted to get right with God, 
You had to bring a sacrifice, bring a burnt offering. It had to be a really good one. So he says, maybe God wants a really good burnt offering, a calf a year old, right? A young, fatted calf. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? I mean, it's a ludicrous offering to God, right? How much do you want? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Again, calling back to the Egypt story. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. What do you want from me? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The word of God for the people of God. Let us say thanks be to God. Amen. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Not thousands of rivers of oil, not thousands of rams, not your own firstborn for your transgressions. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. I'll be honest, I was struggling uh, to feel inspired as to what to say this Sunday for this sermon um, until Wednesday happened. I had an interesting Wednesday that I want to talk about today. That's where my message is coming from this morning. Because on Wednesday, I spoke to three different people. I had three different conversations. And they were wildly different from each other. And yet, in many ways, they are, the three conversations I had represent the three kinds of people that I believe are engaging and encountering the church today in this sort of edge of exile moment that we live in here in America. Three conversations that represent where I feel like so many people are on that Pew Research poll that I put on the screen to start this message. And I want to talk about each of those conversations and how I see the words of Micah echoing through each of these conversations. It was a really interesting Wednesday. Do you ever have days that you just know, like, ooh, I got to notice today. This is an important day. And it's not like anything earth-shattering is happening. You're just like, oh, wow, this is one of those days. I don't remember what happened on Tuesday, but I remember Wednesday, right? Wednesday was one of those days. First conversation, I'll call this conversation, I believe in Jesus, I'm just not sure about the church. I believe in Jesus. I'm just not sure about the church. Do you know anybody who's had a conversation with you like this? I have these conversations a lot. This was over lunch. Uh, this was a lunchtime conversation that turned into a coffee time conversation. It was one of those lunches that ends up extending, right? Because you know we can't stop it here, right? And uh, we went to a ramen joint. My, this friend of mine, he... he um, He's come to Thrive for some time, and I hadn't seen him in a while. And so I'd been reaching out. We'd been playing phone tags since December, trying to set something up, and finally we got together. We went to a ramen joint. It was my first time ever having ramen. It was the second time I've tried to have ramen. The first time I tried, there was this place uh, down by 723 on Fort Worth Avenue where we have our 723 ministry in North Oak Cliff area. And I went down there, and, uh, and I was going to grab ramen before we did uh, worship that night. And, uh, and I walked in, and I saw the menu. I didn't know what any of it man and I got real stressed real fast and there was no line in front of me and the guy at the counter was like what are you going to order and I was just like I don't know and I just ran out like I just couldn't handle it it was just too much right it was just nope I'm going to get a burger that's what's going to happen I know how to order a burger um, <laughs> so uh, I ordered what he ordered at lunch at the ramen place he's like do you just want me to get two of what I'm getting yes thank you so much yes please so we had ramen and, and 
as we began talking, he, uh, we did the you know, quick check-in, hey, how's your family, how's your kids? And, you know, and then we quickly sort of got to the point of the day. I said, hey, you, you told me in a text that, that you've been on kind of a journey and that you had a lot to share with me. You know, do you care to share? And, uh, and so we started talking, and, and here's uh, the, the, the two-hour conversation as to why I hadn't seen him in church for a while. And this is what he said. He said he was raised... Um, see if this sounds familiar to you. He was raised in a very conservative evangelical church home uh, where the basic underlying teaching was if you're faithful, then God will reward you, and if you're bad, God will punish you. Anybody here grow up in a church like that? Every bad thought, every misstep would not be covered with grace, but instead with shame as he sat in pews growing up wondering how God could possibly love someone as disgusting as him. And then as a young adult, he began to battle depression and anxiety. And he couldn't understand why prayer and church attendance, the two things that he was told would bring reward according to his upbringing, why these things were not fixing the deep darkness that he felt in his own life. Why is this not working? More shame, more guilt. There must be something wrong with me. I must not be faithful enough. So he started coming to Lover's Lane with his wife, and, and, and he loved the church, and he loved the worship, and he loved the preaching, of course. And uh, while he knew that the message was different, God, I hope it's a different message, than the, what he had grown, grown up hearing, he could not shake the trauma of what church had meant to him for so very long. Do you know someone like this? We all know someone like this who can't walk in the doors of a church because it's just there's too much pain there. And so he stopped coming, and guess what? Guess what? He's been getting better. He's getting help for his mental health. He's doing things that bring him joy. He's noticing the little things in his life that bring him joy already that he, didn't, that he couldn't see before. He's reading the teachings of some guru from India whose name I can't pronounce, right? And here's the deal. He told me, Scott, I still believe in Jesus. I believe the Christian story. Like, I, be, I'm, I, I believe this stuff. I'm not walking away from my faith. I'm trying to find it. For the first time, I'm trying to really find it, and I just don't think for now I can do that in church. I need to deprogram myself from, years I, from the years I spent associating God with reward and punishment and shame and guilt. i got to deprogram myself. Now, he's had this conversation with folks not like me. He's had conversations with folks that were sort of from his, from his earlier years in the Christian faith. And, and, and he told me so many times the conversation just ends with them getting deer in the headlights. Look, I don't even know what to make of him. He's got 14 heads. And, and, and all he gets response from them is just overwhelming fear of, oh, my gosh, aren't you concerned about your soul? Aren't you concerned about your security? You know, and, 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 and let, me, let me just, this isn't in the script. If, if the only reason you're showing up to church or the only reason you can give folks to go to church is because they ought to be scared of an angry God, listen, stay home on Sunday. Like, that, that, that is not the word of Jesus Christ. That's not the gospel message. And yet, that is so much of what exists here in American Christianity is we should go to church because we ought to be scared of what God will do if we don't. What a loving God that is, right? I told him, I'm not worried about you. I'm not worried for your soul. I know you, can, I know you love Jesus. I can see that. I can hear that. I'm not worried about you. In fact, I told him it actually brings me joy to see the light and the joy in his face. When he sat down, I could tell something was different. He didn't have to open his mouth. I thought something's different with him. Something's changed in him. I told him the story of John Wesley. John Wesley's the guy that started Methodism. He was raised Anglican. 
You talk about an old, cold, stone building. Anglican growing up in the time that John Wesley grew up, his dad was a priest. He became a priest. He was whip smart, knew everything you're supposed to know about God. He was going to go and plant churches in Georgia in the new colonies, right? That was the new suburbs uh, back then, right? That, he said, I'm going to go plant a church up in Prosper. Well, Prosper was Georgia back then. That was the new colonies. And so uh, he, he goes there and he fails miserably absolutely terrible, right? We, our whole denomination was started by a failed church planter. How cool is that, right? And so he goes back to England, and, he, and he's, and he's kind of licking his wounds, and he doesn't know what to do with his life, and everything he thought he knew is, is crumbling in front of him. And he ends up encountering some people called Moravians. This is a totally other branch of Christianity, totally different than Anglicanism. There was this holiness movement. They would sit and pray together for hours, and they would have these fellowship meals together. But there was something about them that just seemed different to him, and it started to stir in him. So he went to worship with them at, at, at this place called Aldersgate. Right? That's where you see a lot of Methodist churches have buildings, or even the church is called Aldersgate. He goes and he worships with them, and, and he describes this experience of meeting and feeling God and God's love and God's presence for the very first time. And he called it his heart being strangely warmed. Not the best description. <laughs> heart strangely warmed, like a hot pocket in the microwave. Right? <laughs> but if your heart's been strangely warmed, you know what he's talking about, right? It's that moment when God stopped being a thought exercise, stopped being something that you, you, you analyzed and overanalyzed and started to be someone you knew and someone whose love you could feel. I told Kevin, I said, oh, shoot. I, he said I could say his name. So, sorry, Kevin. Hey, Kevin. Um, he said, put, your pic, put my picture on the screen if it helps you out any. Um, I did clear this with him. So, I said, I'm not going to put your picture on that, but I will accidentally say your name, I guess. So, uh, <laughs> love you, Kevin. I'm not worried for him uh, because I could see in him that he was le getting outside the walls of the church and he was having his heart strangely warmed and he was meeting the living and loving God for the very first time. Why would I be afraid of that? Why would that bring me any grief? You know, John Wesley stayed outside the walls of the church. He didn't like to preach in cold stone buildings moving forward. He would preach out in the fields to coal miners on their way to work. He preached on top of his dad's grave in the family cemetery because he was a little weird, right? The second we start thinking that the only place people can find God is in the pews of a church, man, we got something terribly twisted. Jesus didn't spend a whole lot of time in the temple unless he was telling them what they were doing wrong. That's what I got to say about that. So... What do I learn from this first conversation? I, I learned that too often people will walk outside the doors of the church and, and, and we, we meet them with fear or anxiety or shame or guilt. Or maybe we don't even meet them at all. We just watch them walk and we don't even care. And I want to say this, church, if, if, if the stats I put on the screen concern you, if you, if you want to see the Christian faith grow in America again, if you want to see the Christian church thrive in our context again, before we can invite people back into the church, we have to ask why they left in the first place. Before we can invite people back into the church, we have to ask why they left in the first place. There's a whole lot of people walking out the church and not coming back in. Why is that? If we don't allow God to do that reforming work within us, if we don't allow God to unearth the things that we wish we could tamp down, if we don't allow God to tell us, hey, maybe some of your pews are actually making people hate themselves. Maybe some of the news that you think is good news is actually the worst, the worst news that person could receive. There's a couple of reasons I think folks are living. I don't, I don't know why, why everyone is leaving. I think we should have these conversations. Two big ones I know, because I talk to folks constantly. One is I think the Christ, that Christianity is shrinking in America because we don't know where our Christianity stops and our Americanism starts. 
We don't know where our Christianity stops and our Americanism starts. This is one of the issues that we talked about. For generations, we've so blended our faith with our patriotism, and I'm not saying you can't love your country. I love my country. I'm not saying that. But we've so blended our faith and our patriotism that part of our reforming work needs to be taking a long, hard look at how our faith informs our politics and not the other way around. Right? The gospel is at its most potent when it is countercultural. The gospel is at its most potent when it is countercultural. Jesus was, a, was this honing knife against the culture that he was in. And we've been lulled to sleep by a truly unhealthy blending of church and state. And we need to do the hard work of pulling the two back apart. If we are more loyal to our political party, and I'm talking about all political parties, if we are more loyal to our political party than we are to the gospel, friends, we have gotten something desperately wrong. So we've got we to talk about that. Second reason I know folks are leaving is because of the harm the church in America has caused for whole generations of people. There have been too many folks in too many pews who've heard too many sermons drenched in guilt and shame. We have to confront the reality that for many, for, many, for millions, the Christian faith has professed in their childhood is a source of profound pain. And they don't carve with a scalpel. What I mean by that is they don't carve with a scalpel. If they were hurt in a Baptist church, they're not going to say, well, maybe I'll try a Methodist one. Right? Most folks don't know the difference between denominations anyways. They're going to say, I am done with Christians, period. There are pair efforts we need to make in our country as the people professing Jesus will take time. And they will not come easy. And we will need to reach out and love and be ready to offer a listening ear even if it's difficult to hear the truth. It's going to take time. This stuff does not come easy. My friend is not coming back to church next Sunday. He may have walked away from the church for now, but I have no doubt that he continues to walk humbly with God as he seeks to build a faith that he can call his own. Those of you who have children or grandchildren or family members that have walked out of church and you're worried for them, can you breathe a sigh of relief? at knowing that God doesn't need to find them here. God is still walking with them, okay? It is not your responsibility to drag their keister back into a church they don't want to go to. God is with them. God has got them. Second conversation I had, I'll call this one, I think Jesus is for everybody and the church should be too. Now this represents a lot of us in the room today. This is the type of conversation that I have with folks who are still in church, who love the church, who support the church mightily, and yet they acknowledge they're in a larger family of faith and even their own extended families that is wrestling internally. Because one thing that reforming works does, one thing that God's reforming work in us does is it exposes these divisions that we didn't know were always there. Right? That's part of reforming work. So I, I got back to the church from my lunch and coffee uh, conversation. Almost immediately had a meeting with another young man, a dad here in Thrive, who wanted to meet with me and talk about a difficult conversation that kept coming up with his own father. He and his family come to Lo uh, Lover's Lane in part because he believes in the mission statement wholeheartedly that, that we want to love all people in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But his dad can't understand how he could support the inclusion of LGBTQ people in marriage and leadership in the church. That's, that's become a rub in his conversations. When we talked about books he could read and we walked through some of the scriptures that I have found personally helpful in developing my own theology around this and my own convictions... 
This was a very different conversation from the first one I had, right? This is not somebody um, who is walking out the church. This is somebody who's raised in the church, who loves the church, who's still here, who wants to be here. And yet, um, we understand that as we've been challenged in our own faith, that creates challenges for those that we know and love. Maybe your Thanksgiving dinner table has gotten a little trickier in the last few years, right? We're in a reforming age. This is when we begin to see some of those divisions we didn't know were always there. Think about the Reformation 500 years ago when Martin Luther went public with his complaints against the Catholic Church and began the movement of Protestantism that has birthed countless denominations and continues to do so to this very day. Seasons of Reformation bring deep, foundation-shaking questions about what we believe and why we are the way we are, and the answers we find can reveal divisions we did not know were always there. Now, there's two ways we can approach the Reformation season. There's two ways we can do this. One is we can double and triple and quadruple down on the fact that we are right and they are wrong. We can carry ourselves with immense pride that comes from the belief that God is only ever on my side, right? I love the the verse that we love to quote, if God is on our side, who can be against us? As though we forget that it starts with if, That if is important. It's in the Bible, right? If God is on our side, that, that, that ought to lead to a second question, right? So we could do that. We could double and triple and quadruple down on we are right, they are wrong, God is on my side, your job is to get to where I am. Or we could practice a faith like Micah professes. We could seek wholeheartedly what we believe is just, what is right. That's what to be just, to be right. To set. We could seek wholeheartedly what is right. We can also treat all people with loving kindness no matter how wrong we believe they are. And we can walk humbly with God knowing that our path will eventually lead us back to those whom we believe we are divided from. If I'm right, but I'm not humble nor kind, then I'm wrong. That's what I hear Micah telling me all the time. Doesn't matter if you think you're right. If you're not kind and you're humble, then you're not being faithful. No amount of right is going to fix that. In the life of our own denomination, in the Methodist Church, we have seen divisions and reunifications time and time again. We've, we've split and we've reunited more than once. It seems to be the way that God's people go. We split over slavery in, 1834, in 1844. And with 100, within 100 years, we reunited the Methodist Church. And then a couple decades later, we brought together with the United Brethren Church, and we became the United Methodist Church. The point is, we've been here before. We've been in this reforming season before. We've been in this division-making season before, and we will be here again. So my prayer is that as our divisions are revealed during the season of Reformation, both as a large body and in our individual families and in our relationships, that we could acknowledge our divisions in a way that leaves room for the Spirit to one day bring back together what today may be separating. Don't have a conversation with your family where you say, you're just so wrong and that means I'm done with you, I'm cutting you off, because when we close the door on the Spirit's work to bring back together what one day is divided, man, that's a dangerous place to be. Because we're not meant to live in exile forever. That is no place to make a home. Third conversation I had, I'll call this one, I don't know the church, but I love this table. 
So after I finished the conversation that afternoon, later that evening, Reagan and I went down to 723, the place I mentioned earlier, down on Fort Worth Avenue in, in West Dallas, uh, right on the border of North Oak Cliff. And um, we, we have a, a ministry there called The Table. It's, it's a dinner church, essentially. It's a worship service that is conducted around a dinner table and over a fellowship meal. And it's led by, uh, the whole 723 project is led by a young woman named Macy Liptoy. Macy in the room this morning? Yeah? No? Okay, that's all. Wait, oh, she's in the shadows. Macy, wave your hand. Everyone, everyone look at Macy. So uh, I'm going to embarrass her right now. Uh, last week, Macy got really good news. She went up before the Board of Ordained Ministry for like the most intense job interview of your life where they grill you for an hour and a half about everything you think about everything, and she passed. And she's going to be Reverend Macy Liptoy this summer. So yay, Macy. Macy is one of the most talented young people I've seen come up to church in a long time, and we are lucky to have her here. And, and so Macy leads this ministry, and that's where we were on Wednesday night. We gathered around a large table with some guests, and, and one of whom was a woman named Ilkner. And Ilkner knows us through 723, this, the place, not the worshiping community. That's what's cool about this location. People come to know the church, not because they're showing up to worship, but because they're showing up to what's happening in that space first. And then they find the church through that. So Ilkner runs something called the Art Stillery. It's this, it's this um, sort of arts incubator that she's created specifically for West Dallas, for the neighborhoods of El Aceite and La Bajada there in West Dallas, because it's, it's something of an arts desert. And her passion is art. And, and giving voice to the voiceless and, and allowing people to have a story. And so she's created this thing called the Art Stillery, where, where the arts are allowed to flourish in 723. We help make that happen. You help make that happen as Lover's Lane. And so she came to, to the table, the, the worship service, after Macy's invitation, and she brought her boyfriend with her. And, and they didn't eat the Raising Cane's chicken fingers that I brought, much to my chagrin. They brought uh, cauliflower crust vegetarian pizza, right? That's the kind of ministry we're doing at 723, right? We love all people in relating my chicken fried keister and the cauliflower crust vegetarian pizza. So we worship at dinner tables around a fellowship meal. It doesn't look or feel like church in the traditional sense. It's conversational. And on Wednesday night, the, the conversation topic was hope. And Reagan brought a, a short message on hope and guided us in a discussion around what we believed hope meant and, and, and what responsibility we had as the people of God to, to bring hope to others. Ilkner finds hope in the arts, in empowering others to find their voice and shining a spotlight on marginalized communities, not out of pity, but out of respect and appreciation to give dignity to people. She spoke with passion. And she's not a Christian. I don't think that she'd respond to that pew poll as, as a Christian. But as she spoke, I could hear the words of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. I've come to bring good news to the poor, release to the captive, sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed. The hope she was speaking of is the same hope that moved the heart of Jesus. At the end of our meal together at the table at 723, we always celebrate the sacrament of Holy Communion. And it's more conversational. It's kind of like how we do here and Thrive a little bit. But we're just around a table and we pass it to one another. It's, it's intimate. We look each other in the eye as we're handing each other um, the, the bread and the juice, the grace and forgiveness in the name of Jesus. Ilkner was raised Muslim. 
and not a faith that she identifies with personally at this point, a note that she had shared earlier in the evening. And so as the time for communion came, I made clear that it was a Methodist communion table, meaning it was open to all people, even those who were just wanting to know more about Jesus, right? That's what John Wesley believed. He believed you could come to faith at the communion table. And so I also wanted to respectfully say, and I did, that, that anyone who didn't want to receive communion could simply ask for a blessing from their neighbor instead. And, you know, sometimes that's what people want. They, they're not sure if they want to partake in this sacrament if they're not ready for it. So I wanted to make space for that. And at 723, like I said, we, we passed the communion to the person sitting next to us. And as the bread and juice made its way around the table, Ilkner was sitting next to me. She was going to be the last one to receive before me. And the time came for her to receive, and she said excitedly, this is my first time to take communion. Right? And most things that she says, I noticed, there was passion and joy behind her. I was like, man, I like you. She said, this is my first time to take communion. She turned then to offer me the communion. And she was double-checking on the language. Wait, the body broken, right? Yeah, okay. You know? Ilkner and, the, Ilkner and the work that we're doing at 723 gives me hope. It gives me hope. I see God at work in her life and in the life that, in the hope that she offers to the communities of Asaife and La Bajada in West Dallas. And, and while she probably would not call herself a Christian on that Pew Research poll, she, asked, she loves the way that Jesus loves and she loves the table that makes room for her. She loves the table that makes room for her. She represents so many millions of people right now in our country that I think would be interested in knowing more about Jesus. But we have to rethink the way that we're doing church and the way that we're bringing this message and the way that we're inviting people in. And we have to, we got to really make sure there's space at the table. We got to really make sure there's space at the table for the Ilkners in our lives because Ilkner, oh my gosh, she loves like Jesus loves. We need Ilkners at the table. And you know what makes the table the most inviting? See, we could have a consultant come in and say, here's what you ought to do as the church if you want to get more people. Guess what? Micah the prophet might be the best consultant of all. And his words still ring true. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. People may not be interested in church, but justice, kindness, and humility never go out of style. If you could have dinner with folks who treat you with justice, kindness, and humility, that sounds like a good time, doesn't it? You might want to hear what they have to say. You might want to have a conversation around hope. You might want to have a conversation around Jesus. People may not be interested in church the way we understand it, but justice, kindness, and humility never go out of style. Ilkner reminds me of the hope in exile, of the good news if we are willing to find it. Yes, things are changing, but my friends, God is not done. Do you not remember, as God says in Micah? So those three conversations define my Wednesday, and they define my week, and in some ways I think they define the season, the era that we are stepping into, the types of people that the church will encounter, one stepping outside the church to find God, one supporting the church and struggling with family infighting, and, and one just now pulling up to the table hoping there's room for someone new. I give thanks for all three. And how they revealed something to me about the heart of God and the work of the church this week. I give thanks for how they so well reflected the words of the prophet Micah as we sit on the edge of exile. No matter where we are, no matter what season we find ourselves in, three things will carry us far. What does the Lord require of us, church? Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. And yes, we give you thanks 
for this time where we sit on the edge of exile. We don't know what the future holds, but we can see the writing on the walls. We know that the church is changing, that the culture around us is quickly leaving. But God, they're leaving our pews and our church buildings, but we know they're not leaving you. It's so easy to forget that. We think we have a monopoly on your love. God, help us to be the kind of church that offers grace and hope and freedom and faith to the kinds of people that I encountered this week, to those who are walking out, and and not for good, but who need to leave the walls of the church to somehow find you and, and build a faith that is born of your love that they can call their own. God, for those who are are here and who love and support the ministry of the church, but who know that it's a hard time. It's a hard time full of hard conversations. When sometimes you realize there are disagreements and divisions that you didn't know were there. God, allow us to leave room for the Spirit to heal what what now feels maybe broken. And God, for those who are not yet at the table, who are just pulling up a seat, make sure we have a space for them. Move in our hearts to rethink the ways in which we do things, the ways in which we profess your love so that it could reach those who are not inside our walls but who are outside and yet still in your love. God, help us to see the way in which you're working outside of the church. Help us to understand that we'll be blessed as we encounter those just pulling up to the table. God, in all these things and in every season, allow the words of Micah to echo in our brains, in our hearts, and in our souls. Help us to be a people called to a simple faith, but a faith that gives life. Allow our offering to simply be justice, kindness, and humility. Humility. 